Good day and welcome everybody uh, to this very interesting discussion happening right now. Uh, myself, I am Dr. Ravi Kumar Modali, and what a pleasure today uh, inviting Dr. Ravinder Mamtani in the discussion. Welcome, Dr. Ravi. Thank you so much, Dr. Ravi. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dr. Mamtani. To to give the listeners a brief view about uh, uh, whom we are speaking to. And, uh, and, you know, what is lying ahead in the discussion? So, uh, Dr. Ravinder Mamtani at Wheel Cornell Medicine, New York. He is a professor in population health sciences and professor of medicine at the Center of Global Health. At Wheel Cornell Medicine, Qatar, he is a full-time faculty member and serves as vice dean for the population health and lifestyle medicine. Dr. Mamtani is a medical graduate from India but has uh, his academic brilliance spread across several continents. So he did his post-graduation in five clinical disciplines, uh, preventive medicine being one of them, public health, occupational medicine. He's a diplomat of American Board of Preventive Medicine and also board certified in lifestyle medicine and integrative medicine. Dr. Mamtani's expert expertise is well known in the areas of chronic disease treatments, uh, mainly chronic pain, arthritis, mental health conditions, uh, gastrointestinal problems, and he actively participates in the development and implementation of several educational and research programs. Like as happening in today's session, uh, Dr. Mamtani gets invitation to speak in several international forums, uh, and uh, he publishes very often in prestigious peer-reviewed journals. For many listeners today, it may be very interesting to know that Dr. Mamtani is a member of the prestigious New York State Board for Professional Medical Conduct, and he was the past chair for the Global Educational Exchange in Medicine. He's an advisory uh, committee member for Educational Commission of Foreign Medical Graduations, and very recently, he was appointed as vice chair for the Lifestyle Medicine Global Alliance in the USA. In the state of Qatar, Dr. Mantani serves on several government and healthcare government-sponsored committees. So with this colorful and very important background, what uh, you carry, uh, Dr. Ravinder Mantani, we would like to ask you a few questions so that you can enlighten us what otherwise has been boggling our minds. So shall we give it a go, Dr. Ravinder Mamtani? Please go ahead. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> so here goes. So as a society today, uh, Ravi, we all are witnessing significant advances in the field of medicine and public health. Technology is being adopted more in different areas. And in the field of medicine also, it has been immensely uh, helpful, uh, mainly for newer treatments and diagnostics tests. But still, there seems to be several challenges yet to be met since long. So from your wisdom, uh, can you help us understand those challenges and comment on them, please? Sure, with pleasure. So first of all, Dr. Ravi, uh, I'm so glad to be here and Thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, as you were speaking about me, I was wondering, who are you talking about? Um, as always, I'm just a simple, plain, straightforward human being 
who believes in providing uh, decent health care and supporting public health of people around the world. So thank you so much. And um, in responding to your first question, you're absolutely right. We've made significant advances in healthcare, medicine, and public health all over the world, including in India. We are much living, we are living much longer. Our life expectancy has gone up. But that being said, as you rightly you, you commented that we are facing many challenges. So just to give you a little overview of these challenges, I would list them as follows. Chronic disease dominance, uh, widespread prevalence of conditions such as depression, pain, esca escalating healthcare costs, unaffordable care around the world. You name a country and healthcare is simply becoming unaffordable. The threat of pandemic and other crises, uh, shortage of healthcare workers, environmental problems, and recently, as we saw with COVID-19, misinformation all over the place. Of these challenges, I think the one that deserves special mention is the challenge of chronic disease paradigm, which, as we know, is responsible for approximately 70% of deaths worldwide and characterized by premature death. And that's bothersome. People are dying earlier than they should be. And of course, if you look at the projections for illnesses such as obesity and diabetes, they're very troubling. A couple of additional um, challenges, I would say, a low level of patient satisfaction when they visit healthcare facilities, low level of empathy, and inadequate emphasis on, as I've spoken previously, on lifestyle health, and one other challenge, which is the challenge pertaining to simple neglect of public health. Um, so I guess that's a summary of challenges, Dr. Ravi, and I'm happy to elaborate on any one of them as you as you please. So back to you. Great. Uh, I think you brought a very important insight about uh, there are so many areas which are yet to be uh, uh, addressed. And uh, if you could help us understand the role of technology of how it could uh, help us in, in a very brief sense in addressing these areas. It will be of help, uh, Dr. Montana. Yeah, I think technology has done wonders. I mean, we are uh, seeing uh, improved diagnostic and screening tests, uh, wonderful newer treatments. We saw with COVID-19, we were fairly quick enough to be able to come up with a vaccine. Um, but sometimes I worry about technology. And, and I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not belittling technology, um, information and, and artificial intelligence. But I mean, oftentimes, things such as premature use of technology, for example, could be worrisome. Um, if we are not exercising caution as we develop new modalities, new procedures, I think exercising caution is, is important. And I would urge for all of us that we should dwell on evidence. I think the buzzwords are evidence-based practice of medicine. So I think relying on science and evidence is extremely important. So that would be my simplistic response to, to your question. Makes a lot of sense, uh, Dr. Mamtani. As you rightly pointed out, uh, in the COVID times, it was as a contingency, but uh, a wonderful use of technology and uh, a doctor speaking to a patient uh, where distance was not, actually distance was an issue from the COVID point of view, 
but it enabled people to take care of their health at their homes. And you were kind of pointing out it has, that is just a start and it could have uh, many uh, benefits if it is adopted overall. Uh, that's wonderful to know from you. And you kind of pointed out neglect of public health. Now that seems to be a lot of uh, meaning around that. And I kind of remember, I think uh, two years back, uh, you had a publication in the Journal of Global Health where you talked about taking public health seriously. So could you let us know what exactly you mean by uh, seriously taking public health and what we should look forward for it? Thank you, Dr. Ravi. I think it's a great question. And if I may, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes on that question and to elaborate uh, on it. Um, if we were to look at the research data, um, we look at CDC from the US, we look at WHO, I'm sure if we look at the data from India as well, two things are clear. One, that there's been a significant improvement in life expectancy, as I said earlier, in the past century or so. And this has happened in India, it's happened in the US, it's happened in high income nations, and it's happened all over. But what's important is 80% of improvement in life expectancy has come as a result of simple public health and primary care measures. That's number one. The second point is, that if you were to look at the return on public health investments, a study recently published in a British journal in 2017 showed that for every one unit of currency, let's use pound as an example, spent on public health interventions, you see a return of 14 pounds. Now, if you spend $1 or one pound and getting a return of $14 or 14 pounds, I mean, if you look at the data, clearly you must deduce that public health is invaluable. It's important. And yet, and yet, we do not provide adequate training and education to medical students in the broad field of public health, including policy and lifestyle approaches. And number two, we're not spending adequate amount of funds on public health research and programs. I mean, look at COVID-19. You mentioned COVID-19. We were ill-prepared from a public health standpoint, I'm sorry, when we were hit by COVID-19. Of course, clinical medicine is important. And again, not belittling clinical medicine is important, but so is public health. Unless you improve the overall public health status of communities, doing only clinical things is meaningless to me. And I want to quote, a professor of epidemiology from London, Michael Marbot, you may remember his name. The quote from him, why treat people and send them back to the conditions that made them sick? I mean, that's a brilliant thought. And if public health can help us address those problems, I think we should invest time, effort, and money into, into public health programs. So I think, we're not paying attention. We ought to take public health seriously, and it's about time. Wonderful. As you said, uh, public health also, there is an ROI which has been calculated and published, and 14 times return is what you're getting. And, and I get a sense the way you say it's about doing the simple things in a methodic way, and it's not just clinical around that. Absolutely. So wonderful to hear that, and a lot of promise, uh, you know, 
I kind of sense that all these sufferings, what uh, today we see population going through, most of them are actually preventable the way you say it. And we should take that first step ahead. Yes, absolutely. There so is nice. so nice. Absolutely. Yes, please. I'm sorry you didn't complete your question. And I began, I got excited at the question you were going to ask me, I thought. But See, that was ahead. relevant, absolutely. Nay, we did get the insight about how, why public health, you say it's a neglected area and why we should bring it into top priority as institutions, yes. as practitioners, as systems. You get that point, uh, uh, Dr. Ravi. So, I mean, if I, if I sense this as we talk about the root issues and uh, you also are board certified in the field of lifestyle medicine and integrative medicine, and we, we all know that, you know, we keep hearing about the adverse lifestyles. This is not right. So many things are an issue. The burden of disease is spoken more. But can you give us an understanding about the association, you know, to the, to the way you understand the unhealthy lifestyles and chronic diseases, something like a diabetes or an obesity? You know, could you share your first thoughts around this? Sure, of course, with delight. Um, and I want to say this slowly because this is the emphasis uh, of, of my response. It has been proven, Dr. Ravi, beyond doubt that unhealthy lifestyles, namely unhealthy diet, lack of physical activity, smoking, stress, inadequate sleep, and lack of social connectedness, contribute to the occurrence of chronic illness is the one that you were referring to. And they're killing people around the world prematurely. As I said earlier, people are dying earlier than they should be. You talked about chronic conditions, and here is one point I want to make. I would have never thought, going back 25 years ago, that one day I'll be talking to brilliant people such as yourself and making a point that heart disease can be actually reversed. There is enough data to support that. There is also, Dr. Ravi, data to support that you can bring about remission in type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now, all of this, and yet practitioners and hospitals remain skeptical or not willing to use lifestyle approaches, is very hard for me to understand. And you asked me to elaborate on it. Let's look at the reasons why this is happening. And I want to present to you my thoughts on reasons and with some, some literature to support my thoughts. Number one, our training on lifestyle medicine has been inadequate. And I want to give you an example of what we've seen in the U.S. In the U.S., in a four-year medical education program, the amount of training that medical students get on nutrition which is apparently responsible for close to 10 million deaths, if, if you look at the data, that the amount of nutrition education is limited to only 15 to 20 hours over a four-year period. I mean, come on, with all this evidence, only 15 to 20 years? And I want to, I want to, I have a quote that I want to share with you and, and the audience on medical education. And this came from the name of the gentleman is a physician, Mark Crabe from New Zealand, who wrote in recent British Medical Journal. And the quote is, medical education has focused on being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than fence at the top. 
and a medical environment is still set up like this, money talks, and there's very little money in promoting eating broccoli and going for a walk, despite them being more effective. Mark Craig, general practitioner in New Zealand. The second reason that there are problems with our health culture around the world. And if I can find a way to summarize this, I would say something like, we live in a quick fix and instant gratification culture that relies on a perception that a pill and a quick procedure will take care of everything. Excuse me, that is not the case. You look at, you look at obesity, look at chronic pain, which is although the theme of this conference, we know there's only so much we can do with conventional medications. And in fact, if I may, talking about obesity, a 2016 New York Times article commenting on this subject of obesity in the U.S. said, one in three Americans is obese, but the healthcare system in its attitudes, equipment, and common practices is simply not prepared. And its practitioners are often unwilling to treat the rising population of fat patients. Dr. Ravi, it's the culture we are dealing with. It's the culture, and, and we need to find ways and means to correct it. There's another reason. I think many lifestyle factors do not get enough attention in a medical evaluation system. I'm talking of doctors, healthcare professionals. How many practitioners actually ask questions of their patients about lifestyle issues? Very few. And, and I think from a patient's point of view, which adds more confusion to the whole picture and ambiguity and makes it difficult, is when you have a patient that goes to Google information on things that he or she may need help on, on cholesterol, for example, you can actually, you can get 78 million close to bits of pieces and, and links that you can access in order to derive information on cholesterol. I mean, that bound, that's bound to create confusion and misinformation. So all of those things are not being helpful. And I think we need to address all of them. So great question. And that's my simplistic response to what you asked, Dr. Ravi. Very interesting views, uh, Dr. Mamtani. What I picked up is the scientific basis actually ha has become so strong to start making the difference, but there seems to be a lag uh, in, in adopting in the medical field itself. You, you were talking about the training curriculum. Uh, it's still not adopted that huge, uh, that brilliance of that scientific evidence yet. So which means action from the practitioner's side itself is one of the vital element what you touched. And you also brought about the consumers are kind of waiting, like, you know, they go to Google and uh, they tend to find answers. And then there is an opportunity, clear opportunity to meet the need from the other side. And yes, I think uh, from the medical point of view, it needs a process approach where if the training is firm, and then the credential is clear and then the confidence to practice. And maybe that's the reason many doctors are still looking at the traditional practice of symptom to a pill rather than spending more time. And yeah, there's opportunities very clear, as you say. Every doctor listening to uh, today's talk uh, should get interested in uh, the new ways of uh, attending to chronic diseases. And uh, yeah, I mean, we are picking up a lot of wisdom from you, Dr. Bamtani. And as we progress ahead, I'm sure that we even more uh, uh, 
uh, knowledge to capture from. So if I could and ask I you a question. You said, Dr. Ravi, yes, I like Dr. what Ravi. the process and how, I, and this is the conversation does not intend to blame doctors or healthcare practitioners, absolutely not. I think it's the system we are in operating in. And that's what I was trying to embellish on. So thank you for making that comment. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. So if a curious doctor, maybe a retired doctor or a fresh medical professional, if they're looking for how do I get a pie of this wisdom and start making a difference to my set of patients, what is the suggestion you would give? So in terms of, I guess, uh, uh, taking lifestyle medicine forward and uh, um, improving healthcare and so on and so forth, is that uh, okay? Yes, please. So Something on those lines, true. So I am, um, um, I mean, I've lived in uh, several countries and, uh, and, um, and one of the things I have always said is that we need to make uh, care more humane and culturally appropriate. Um, and I have learned the following things that hopefully will improve patient outcomes that I think will be extremely important for us to consider. Um, and I have learned from my mentors, from patients, my colleagues, such as yourself and students. And here are some illustrations of, uh, of some of my experiences and my learning. Uh, one is that to me, for us to understand that patient-centered care is monumentally uh, valuable. And I have always said that it is important to treat a person with the problem than to treat the problem in that person, right. uh, i.e. patient-centered care. Put patients first. And Sir William Osler once said, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And, and that's what I mean about holistic approach. So the one thing we can do is certainly find a way without compromising on the time to adopt a patient-centered approach. The second point that I want to make is, it's important and imperative that we bring in compassion and empathy in our healthcare system. It's vitally important. You know, listening to our patients is extremely important. Uh, try and not interrupt as the patients narrate their story to a practitioner. And then finally, I think speaking to the patient in the language they understand is extremely important. We may think that the patient is understanding, but they may not be. It's an opportunity for us to, for example, ask our patients, is there anything else I can share with you? Is there anything else I can clarify or questions to that effect? Um, and give them space to express their pain and suffering. And research is documented again, Dr. Ravi, if you look at the Lancet and BMJ publication, that in general, practitioners who are warm and adopt reassuring communication techniques or style have definitely better patient outcomes. So some of those thoughts come to mind, um, in addition to, of course, providing all the modern treatments, other approaches, and I'm happy to talk more about that as we take our conversation forward. Thank you. So nice to hear about this, uh, Dr. Mamdani. You actually took me back to the time when I was uh, kind of taking the medical oath. And there we kind of were saying that, you know, as a doctor, I am committing myself to human service. And then 
later on, most of the time, I would have looked only for a diagnosis. I was seeing for a diagnosis and just trying to treat the diagnosis. And in the busyness of my schedule, I would have ignored the human uh, the, who, in the person within what the diagnosis was there. And thanks for bringing that out. I think everything what you're sharing today seems to be very foundational. Get back to our foundations. Uh, relate to the human in front of you and not don't jump into the diagnosis and match the treatment and the lot of opportunities lies there. Uh, so nice to hear that response. Let me just add to what you said, Dr. Ravi. In fact, people have said, there are people around the world who have said that if you talk to the patient and listen to them long enough, you will have the diagnosis right there in front of even more, yeah. The patient, the way they are experiencing the diagnosis seems to be having that magical opportunity of yes. what may actually work. Yes. And uh, non-medicinal interventions, as you were pointing out earlier, lifestyle medicine may have a larger role to actually, uh, you know, reverse a disease or, or remit a difficult diagnosis, as you were pointing out. Yes. Wonderful. So if I, if I could shift the discussion, because all what you said, it kind of it relates to a huge problem uh, people are, are going through, something like a muscular play, pain, you know, sitting for excess time or joint issues. In a younger age, people are experiencing, uh, you know, pains, aches, stiffness, things like that. So anything from your side, any exciting new developments uh, in, in the adoption of integrative and lifestyle medicine in the area of work-related musculoskeletal disorders. Could you sure. share your thoughts around this? Absolutely, with, with, with pleasure. And uh, as you know, I've had some background in chronic pain management in New York. Um, I'm a great supporter of, of, of supporting people and healing people with chronic problems. In fact, that was one of my areas of interest, as you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, the work-related musculoskeletal disorders are common. And, um, and because of time constraints, I don't want to go into the details, but simply put low back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, they're widely prevalent. Uh, but more importantly, pain, um, along with associated symptoms such as anxiety, depression, and fatigue are also common. And, and these patients have tried many medications, modern medications, painkillers. They've tried surgical procedures, and some have been helped. Of course, some have been helped, but there are many who feel frustrated, and they feel that the so-called modern system has let them down. They feel miserable. So, I, I want to say one thing that even though we've gone to medical schools, top-notch medical schools, Dr. Ravi, you've gone to great school, you've received wonderful training as have many members in the audience. The one thing that we need to look at is to look at beyond this horizon of, of what we think is the only way to take care of patients, which is pills, surgeries, and so on and so forth. And if you look far enough, what becomes apparent is there are other modalities that are out there that can be helpful. So let me give you a flavor of, of what I'm talking about based on evidence, all uh, evidence. Mind-body techniques are known based on science research to help patients with chronic pain. Absolutely no doubt. And if you look far enough, if you look at the science, we talk about the psychoneuroimmunological basis connection the chronic problems, 
we can capitalize on that collection by calming the mind. Meditation, mindful meditation, has been a proven technique in helping people with anxiety, depression, and chronic pain. Number two, if you look at the, the, the medical acupuncture approach, it has been proven that when you stick needles in the human body, you are stimulating a delta fibers, which in turn are sending signals to the spinal cord, midbrain, and at cortical level, releasing a wide range of neurotransmitters such as beta endorphins, uh, GABA, serotonin, uh, ACTH, which in turn will release cortisol and thereby helping people with pain, inflammation, and so on and so forth. I'm actually fascinated that this conference will also focus on myofascial pain syndrome. And I had a lot of patients with MPS in my practice that I was able to help with what we call as dry acupuncture needling with fantastic results, Dr. Bobby. And just to complete the picture of some of the other recent developments, um, somebody with history of osteoarthritis, especially recent osteoarthritis, somebody who may have put on weight in, in recent days or months, the treatment is to lose weight, not to go for injection, lose weight, and you'll be taking the burden off the cartilage between the two bones in your lower extremity. And then there are plenty of other and the modalities. I'm a strong supporter of anti-inflammation diet. You know, if underlying inflammation is the reason why chronic illnesses are happening, then I think we need to incorporate that. So all of those, they've been known to us from times immemorial. But if you look at the recent literature, and I've taken when you said research, these are all recent findings pointing in that direction that we ought to look at other modalities that can nicely complement the existing conventional modern care in terms of taking care of patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain. How brilliant. Uh, so clearly, uh, uh, the routine thinking is, if there is a pain, look for a painkiller, look for a more effective painkiller. And what you brought out, the whole person approach and under human services, think of the whole person and the opportunity seems to be very simple, subtle as mindfulness practices or reducing weight, the excess weight, what the joints are carrying on them yeah. and some subtle techniques like the dry needle techniques, yeah. what you talked about. So yeah. absolute, and people would love actually these kind of uh, options if uh, the doctor were offering. And as you rightly pointed out, the theme of the premise WDPI and the Mayo Pain Conference, uh, which is coming up in the month of September this year, actually brings in a lot of thinkers like you. And you, as you pointed out, new discoveries have a lot of value for medical practitioners to know, for engineers, for corporates, for people to know and capitalize on these opportunities. Uh, thanks bet. for uh, bringing that out so brilliantly, uh, Dr. Mantani. So having said that, now immediately my thought is going corporates, where people, the, the work is more, it's a mental work rather than physical work. And then the body seems to be getting into the sedentary mode most of the times by choice or by not having a choice. And some people are still trying to do something but please let us know uh, what a, a corporate uh, as uh, as uh, who could inhabit 
uh, anywhere between 5,000 employees to lakhs and lakhs of employees. How should they understand all what you have shared and what is it what they can do? So, um, I'm, um, Dr. Ravi, as you know, I'm also an occupational health physician. I spent a lot of time uh, in New York doing that. And I think your question is such an important one. Uh, it's so important that I think we need to understand what happens in work uh, environment. And if there are things that uh, corporate entities can do to promote well-being. It's already happening. Uh, it's happening in India. It's happening in the U.S. But the question, which is, I think, the intent of your question, do we, can we do more? And I think the answer is absolutely, you bet, we can do more. And we also know that the, the healthier workforce can be more productive. There is plenty of data to support them. Let's not doubt that for one second. A healthier workforce can be more productive and healthier. And it is important for employers and corporate entities to consider their well-being um, and then promote health. So some simple, straightforward things that employers can think of. And again, many of them are doing it. But here are some of my thoughts. If there's an opportunity for employers to offer on-site lifestyle of preventive and or clinical services to its employees, I think that would be wonderful. Um, and I think equally important is this mental health support. Because with COVID-19, we've seen people are more depressed. They've become more anxious. And I think mental health should be a priority. You talk about stress. We are all stressed out. I mean, to some extent, stress is good. It helps you look at challenges and be productive. But if the stress becomes chronic, that is not a good thing. So we have to make our populations more, employee population more resilient. So I think mental health should be a priority. Then there are simple things that employers can do. Maybe make available, I don't know, weighing machines, maybe calculators so that people can calculate their BMI for them to know where do they stand in terms of weight or obesity. Number three, it is an opportunity to do simple stuff, including some self-care, offer maybe some services, coaching services, tobacco cessation kinds of approaches, weight management, discussion on diet, exercise um, how do you encourage people to indulge in self-care in a meaningful way and also change the workplace environment and culture so that you discourage the use of tobacco you alter buildings and grounds to encourage walking access to healthy foods you know things of that nature the desk i'm sitting on at the moment if i may stay indulge in this this desk goes up and oh. it goes down. So I would spend at least an hour or two, I stand and work. Because as you know, research has documented that it's not just a physical activity. But if you spend too much time sitting and being a couch potato, then that's not good either. Sedentary behavior is not good. That's an independent risk factor for chronic illnesses. I'm sorry, I was being a little <laughs> jovial. Actually, it was looking nice. In fact, this is the my message, which I, was, <laughs> message this is which I was gathering was, Dr. Manpati's advice can make a corporate worker actually enjoy adopting positive lifestyles. And that would work in favor for the corporates too. You bet. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, well, you, you, 
you brought up the intelligent question, but that was my response to show you that we at Cornell are very mindful of this. So I have a desk which takes me up and down. I stand two hours a day while working with my 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 you know projects. So correct. And, so, and you also knowingly or unknowingly you spoke almost a huge list of possibilities while you were talking about the, the you know the the mental relaxation techniques, breaking sedentariness and uh, maybe reducing stress a huge varieties of options what can be done only within the corporate the workplace setup impossible to think of you know try to do something at home try to do something in the hospital and come back and you know you will feel uh, uh, you know doing something good around that you're talking about absolutely yeah yeah i can i just make one other point and i think your question Please. is so great that that people with backgrounds in in uh, in uh, occupational health or in person occupational health such as yourself can actually support corporate entities which is to to provide services such that they encourage self-care and i bet you and i bet you that those entities will see a reduction in their healthcare costs because if you have a healthier workforce with support and if corporate entities would get support from professionals you and your team and others, uh, you will see a tremendous benefit both to the companies and to its employees. And they will have this Yeah, exactly. Healthy. And as you spoke about, if public health itself brings you 14 times the returns, and I could only guess how significant the returns could be for corporate food invest in positive health care. Absolutely. Great, wonderful. And Dr. Mamtani, I think you covered such a, in, in a brief, you know, five or six questions, you brought in so much of wisdom in the varieties. And yes, the conference is coming up in a few months. Uh, if I may ask you a question, what are you looking forward for in the conference in the month of September, which happens between 20th and 26th this year? And it covers about myopain on one side, work disability and prevention related issues and prevention of musculoskeletal disorders. What are you looking forward for? So I, I want to begin by congratulating the organizers of the committee of this conference. So if you were to just summarize what you said, what did you say? You talked about chronic pain. You talked about prevention. You talked about myofascial pain, the lives the, the, the life prevalence of myofascial pain syndrome, I was reading about it, is close to 60 to 70 percent. I mean, that's pretty, pretty huge in terms of its prevalence. Yes. You talked about disability. You talked about musculoskeletal pain. You talked about lifestyle health. You captured almost everything that the healthcare systems are paying attention to. I mean, how can one not attend the conference? I think that to me, from my personal standpoint, I'm certainly looking forward to my participation in this unique forum, which provides a unique opportunity for health professionals, uh, general practitioners, people who are in corporate medicine, employers, educators, researchers, and those, are, those people who are concerned with workforce wellness. Um, and for me to be able to interact with them and network with others, uh, I think would be simply fantastic. And I think the discussion at your meeting and your conference may have relevance to others in healthcare system, Dr. Ravi, uh, in India and, and abroad. So um, 
just based on this conversation, I, I am seeing that there are things that people from the country and in the neighboring, neighboring countries can learn from in terms of the discussions that are going to happen. So I'm certainly at a personal level, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm sure this will be a great conference. An academic feast indeed uh, in the coming and the likes of Dr. Mamtani and several other thinkers would be coming together. It will be wonderful spending time with you. And to all the viewers of this uh, session, uh, please uh, book your time. And, you know, the venue is in Bangalore. We all would be there. And let's spend good time in making that transformative difference, you know, in all our capacities, what we can do. And there's a lot uh, in store uh, in those seven days between September 20th and 26th. Uh, thank you, Dr. Montani, for uh, being such a brilliant response, you know, what you have shared. Uh, look forward to all great things to happen. Thank you so nice much. Nice day to all. Thank Take you care. for inviting me. Bye. Thank you for the conversation and, and all the best. Thank you. Thank you.